Is this Dhamma question? Is this, what is time? You must ask Kant, Emmanuel Kant. He is the one who talked about time. Whoever asked this question, the conscient, in the conscient philosophy, he discussed the concept of time. I am not expert in that. And also it is not a Dhamma question. And so I put it aside. <laughs> you read the conscient philosophy, go to internet, type Kant, Emmanuel Kant, and type the concept of time. He will tell you everything <laughs> about time. How can we work with emotions in Vipassana? It seems like to be fully aware of them and understand them. You would need to impose thought by identifying them and in order to learn from them. Okay? You would need to uh, determine with thoughts where they come from and why. No. <laughs> you don't need uh, thoughts to identify emotions. Of course, if you analyze and talk about it, teach somebody, and if it is a sort of communication with somebody, then you need words, concepts, ideas, and so on. But for your own experience, your own uh, awareness, you don't need any word. All you need is paying total, undivided attention without words, labels, concepts, and thoughts. For example, when you get angry, one of the emotions, do you need to say angry, 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 angry to understand anger? No, you feel it. When you have greed, lust, craving, sadness, depression, nervousness, do you need any word to identify them? No. Only when you teach somebody what anger is, then you have to use many, many, many different words to describe uh, how one feels, what will happen, and so forth. Still you cannot share the real feeling of anger with somebody until, unless you punch in his nose, eh? or utter, you know, have, uh, you know, shouting competition, just to feel the other person that you are angry. Still you cannot convey the full impact, full force of anger as you feel it to somebody else. You can never do that. Only you experience it. See, everything is like that. There are some other very deep, subtle feelings. You come to meditation home. How do you feel? Can you express it to somebody? <laughs> you may say, oh, what does it mean? Beautiful. What does it mean? Nothing. You experience it and you know how you feel about it, how you experience it. And so, what in Vipassana meditation we do is not using 
any words, concept to express things to anybody. Although we are, when we talk, uh, we use words and so forth, still we cannot convey the entire meaning of our experience, even in vipassana meditation. So what we do is, we pay total attention to see how things arise, how they remain, how they pass away, activities, activities. So, so I disagree with the belief that uh, you have to have terms, words, to impose uh, thoughts, to identifying them. You read it from me or you just... Oh yeah, <laughs> forget about it. During in-between times at this retreat, walking in the hall, meal times, etc., I noticed many judgments of self and other arising. <coughs> what is a good way to work with this? Whenever you have a situation to make a judgment, immediately go to your mind and say, who am I to judge anybody? When the very fact, you know, judging means that I am superior to others. So that that's why I, I can judge. I try to judge. If I don't feel superior or inferior to anybody, then I don't try to make a judgment, sort of uh, self-praise and uh, desperating others when we do the judgment. And therefore, as soon as the situation arises in the mind to make the judgment, be immediately mindful and uh, let it go. There's a very beautiful discourse in the Smajjamini Kai called Indriya Bhavana, Something in the Bhanga, Indri Bhanga is the last discourse. We have the same. If you keep mind practicing mindfulness, keep practicing, 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 then our mindfulness becomes so powerful, so strong, it is just like a frying pan on the stove all day long. It is very, very hot. If you take a, a few drops of water and put there, it immediately evaporates. Similarly, as soon as, as mindfulness is in full force practicing, whenever such thought arises, it immediately disappears. Because mindfulness is so powerful, it does not entertain thoughts like that. Let go. So we have no uh, chance to make any judgment. And in mindfulness practice itself, what we do, we don't make value judgment. <laughs> so, when, it, when we sit, uh, when we are practicing mindfulness on the cushion, we don't make value judgment. Similarly, when we are out of the cushion, we don't make value judgment. It's a very good training, but unfortunately we have been so accustomed to this habit of judging and therefore habitually we might try perhaps inadvertently to make a judgment. I think if we remain mindful we can avoid that. What is the role of faith in Buddhism? What is the role of faith? Faith has a very important role. Faith is the seed. The Buddha says Sandha Bijam. 
the seat of her mental development. Sadhadhanam, faith is the wealth. But the faith that the Buddha talks about is based on facts, on understanding. Having understood something, then faith builds up, arises. If we have mere blind faith, then we cannot uh, understand the truth. We simply blindly follow, just like one blind man is following another blind man. But the real faith is that which arises from the practice and then understanding, then faith arises. That faith is called unshakable faith. There are various levels of faith. Sampakkhandana Saddha, Sampasadhana Saddha, Achala Saddha and so forth. Sometimes faith is made you jump forward to grab something. That is called Sampakkhandana. And sometimes uh, faith is cleaning the mind. That's called Sampasadhana. Like when you attain the second jhana, in jhanic meditation, when you attain the second jhana, in right mind, right concentration, you will have Sampasadhana. Jesu Sampasadhana. Ekoji Bhavan and so forth. That is cleaning, cleaning the mind. And the last is, uh, in that category, is uh, Achala Sadhana, when you attain the stream entry. Stream entry, when you attain it, your faith is so firmly established because you have seen the truth. In, when you enter the stream entry, you have already seen the way how three fetters vanished from your mind. When the fetters vanished from your mind through from your own practice, then you have a utmost confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And that confidence, that trust, that faith will never be shaken. There are, there are many things to say about it, but I restrain myself. So what, that answers the second part. You've already answered it. But does one need faith to practice Buddhism? One need, okay. What, does one need faith to practice Buddhism? I must say, you uh, practice certain Buddhist principles and then you will get faith and then that faith will help you to understand, learn Buddhism even further, more deeply. So first, for instance, uh, we have to have certain basic trust. It's very much like when you are sick, you go to a doctor who would uh, diagnose your sickness and prescribe medicine. Then you would think, well, uh, let me go to a science laboratory and test, see whether this particular chemistry, chemical in this medicine, what does it do? Let me go to the internet and see the side effects and so forth and you read and all this and research and so forth. By the time you will be dead. So, you got to get the medicine first. And then when you see, when you took the medicine, your sickness is cured, then you will have trust and faith in the doctor. Similarly, we have to have a certain degree of faith to start. 
and that faith will be confirmed, reinforced through the practice, and then it becomes very strong. Please show how to bow correctly and also explain its significance. You want me to do the first part? Yeah, you do the first part, then the rest I explain. <laughs> but for, you should do it correctly. Well, that, that remains to be seen. But yeah. If you do it wrongly, then you don't teach the correct bow. No. <laughs> Holding it down, not your forehead on the floor. Yeah, you yeah. It there. Well, here it's okay. You cannot do that there, because you say, the way you are sitting there... <laughs> I knew there would be a technical difficulty. <laughs> because the seat itself is too small. Oh, if I went like this? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I'll do it seriously. <laughs> I know you are a big man. Too, this seat is too small. <laughs> All right. Three. So, what is the second part? Oh, the theory. Uh, theory. Uh, symbolism. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait, wait. That's the next question. Uh, explain its significance. Significance. <coughs> significance. You know, in uh, Asian tradition, not only Buddhist, uh, Hinduism, the way they show respect is little different. They touch touch the feet with both hands, they touch the feet of a, a religious person, holy person, and touch, and then touch their forehead. Touch their feet, first they come, bow down, touch the feet, and touch their forehead, three times. That is Hindu tradition. In Buddhist tradition, this is one way. In Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they really prostrate. You know, all stretch yourself on the floor. If you go to Buddha Gaya, you can see they go around prostrating, uh, they stretch and mark and walk to that place, stand there and then stretch all the way on the ground and mark and go. That is Tibetan. Some uh, Chinese, Japanese, some Vietnamese, they stand and bow. Stand, kneel, and bow. Uh, the way we hid it was the way in Sri Lanka, Burma, and Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, they do. The significance is just to make ourselves humble before the Buddha, before the senior uh, disciples of the Buddha, uh, we bow down like that, just to show our humility that we are very humble before them. That's a way of showing respect. As you know, in the Catholic tradition, you kneel, you put one knee down on the floor and bow to the priest and the altar. I think they call that genuflecting. I see. Genuflecting. Yeah. I think these are very good uh, ways of gaining uh, respect, just to show our respect to the elderly people and re religious persons. Please explain the symbolism of the altars. 
symbolism of altar. Altar is uh, not in original Buddhist tradition, but uh, later on when the Buddha statue, Buddha statues were uh, crafted, people wanted to offer flowers, incense, and the light in order just to put these things in front of the image, put the image, we have the altar. What advice can you give to someone who feels drawn to the homeless life and may wish to ordain as a bhikkhu one day? Now, in here, in this country, we are very uh, cautious about uh, sheltering homeless people because of some experiences we had in the past. We want to get uh, their mailing address, some references in order to, and also to check their background. Sometimes they are, we want to know what sort of person he is. You know, there can be sometimes uh, people running away from some, committing some, sometimes a crime. They can run away. Sometimes uh, they have some uh, family. Suppose somebody refuses to pay alimony, <laughs> child supports, something like that. Some people can run away from the police, run away from jails. We don't know. And therefore, uh, we always are cautious uh, once we have checked the background, once we know the person is a reliable person, very serious, serious sincere person. Then we give them a training for one year as a lay person, and then we give uh, ordination as novice for another year, and then we give full ordination after that year. We go through these stages to particularly since once you are enrolled, you represent the Sangha, Buddhist community. And when people, when people come, they see the monk in robe. They don't know what this person is. They see a person with a yellow robe. Then they, they, have, they must trust the person. They must have full confidence in the person. And so they can talk to them. Uh, they can get advices and so forth. So in order to maintain the dignity, respect, honor, and also to make people feel confident to meet that person and so forth. For many good reasons we go through this procedure, but uh, somebody who all of a sudden comes here and is homeless and I won't, I, I like to have a place and so forth, then it is difficult. I have had blissful experiences during meditation in the past and I find I try to recreate them. How can I let go of the present memories, the pleasant memories, so I can experience the present moment? How can I let go of the pleasant, pleasant experience pleasant. or past memory? Pleasant memories. Pleasant memory. Actually, uh, if you had, if you had any blissful experience in the past, if it ha if it happened without. Uh, any uh, awareness and without any uh, steps that you know, all of a sudden it happens, you don't know how to recreate that. 
and therefore forget it. Even if it is very pleasant, since you don't know the steps that led you there, you cannot recreate it. And therefore, it is better not to think about it. But start all over from so, scratch, so to say, following the instruction that that you get from a teacher. So these all involve um, uh, the ability to see impermanence, and so they stepwise they go um, in methods of excluding things. So to start out with, meditation and metta go together. Why? That is, why could one not see that everything is impermanent and that no thing has a self by meditation alone, that is, by concentration plus vipassana? Read it again, yeah. please. Meditation and metta go together. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then it says, that is, why could one not see that everything is impermanent and that no thing has a self by meditation alone, that is, by concentration plus vipassana. So, why in meditation alone one can see impermanence? Uh, yes, uh, that is, by concentration and vipassana. In other words, they're uh, asking a question, why wouldn't we just be able to use concentration and vipassana exclusively without metta? Oh, now, I mentioned in my uh, little instructions in the morning, mindfulness and metta go together. These are not two separate things. That is why in the uh, recital in the Karaniya Metta Sutta part that we recite at lunchtime and in the morning, the word sati, the mindfulness is mentioned there in the Sutta itself. And uh, it is called etam sati. This mindfulness should be developed. This mindfulness refers to metta, loving friendliness. So, one has to be very mindful to understand suffering, so that we can cultivate metta for alleviate, at least to minimize suffering. And therefore these two go together. This should not be precluded from the mindfulness concentration meditation. On the other hand, when we practice metta, we gain concentration. That is one of the eleven benefits of metta practice. We gain concentration very quickly. Why? When we practice metta, our hatred, our anger, resentment fades away. When resentment fades away, and also greed fades away. Greed is uh, greed disguises as metta. That is why sometimes people find it easy to practice metta towards their loved ones. They will say, I love, I've sent metta to my wife, my husband, my children, my brother, my sister, my parents. Why? Because they are the ones we love very much. So, they are, they are, love means they, they have a desire. And this desire, a clinging, craving, attachment, disguises as metta. Metta is far superior to our ordinary love with one another. Ordinary love has its opposite, hate. 
You know this love-hate dichotomy, we, we always talk about love-hate dichotomy, because that is not metta. Today you love, tomorrow you hate. <laughs> metta is not like that. Metta is unconditional. No matter how you are, what you are, where you are, in what condition, your metta will not diminish. It remains the same. So it is very altruistic practice. Therefore, when we practice metta, greed or desire, clinging, craving, doesn't come to play. It has no place in metta practice. So we let it go. We stand above that. And anger also will not arise when we practice metta. Since we, you know, when we do concentration meditation, one of the five factors of jhana is concentration. The opposite of that is greed. When there is greed, we cannot concentrate. So, greed is one problem, anger is another problem. Both of them will be overcome when we practice metta, so that we can gain concentration. And then, mindfulness. So, these, these all go together, not separately. Metta, concentration and mindfulness all go together. Helps with these other questions too. By concentration or absorption, Hindus attain their true self, Atman. Only when the Buddha added Vipassana to concentration was it possible to see that everything is impermanent and that there is no self, no Atman anywhere. Why can't one not see this by concentration alone? So, Why can't see uh, this? by concentration alone? Okay. Now, concentration alone, without mindfulness, can uh, be wrong concentration. We are talking about the right concentration. Right concentration always has mindfulness in it. You know, when we, uh, in the Noble Eightfold Path, the seventh step is mindfulness. Eighth step is concentration. So concentration precedes or concentration follows mindfulness. Mindfulness precedes concentration. And therefore, you practice mindfulness and then come to concentration. And then when you gain deep concentration, the notion of self will completely disappear. Why and how? What do we do when we practice Sipasana, mindfulness practice? In mindfulness, we see impermanence. In There is a discourse called Anatta Lakhana Sutta. <coughs> Buddha, Buddha goes step by step to show selflessness. In Anatta Lakhana Sutta, the first thing he says, form is impermanent. Then Buddha says, if the form is per, imp, permanent, no, no, Buddha first said, form is without self. If the form is with self, then this form will not be subject to affliction. If the form is self, then the form will not be subject to affliction. Since the form does not have self, the form is subject to affliction. So, then Buddha go to the next step. He said, he asked Bhikkhus, Bhikkhus, is the form permanent or impermanent? They said, impermanent venerable sir. That which is impermanent, satisfactory or unsatisfactory? Unsatisfactory venerable sir. 
then Buddha's that which is impermanent, unsatisfactory. Is it possible, is it proper to say that this is myself? They said no. Why? Something if this if something is impermanent, unsatisfactory, there is nothing to stop this impermanence and unsatisfactory, nothing to make impermanent permanent, unsatisfactoriness satisfactory. Nothing. And therefore, conclusion is that there is no self. This is a sort of a Buddhist Buddha's uh, logic. This is a syllogistic. You know, in syllogism, there are steps. Step one, two, and then conclusion. This is how he showed this logical conclusion of no self. And that is, that is, of course, to answer the question of can concentration see this without mindfulness? Cannot. Concentration needs mindfulness to show impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, to understand selflessness. Yeah, that addresses this last one. Would it be impossible to see that everything is impermanent and that no thing has a self by anupasana alone? Okay. From anupasana what happens? Vipassana arises. Anupasana means uh, seeing things as they are happening, then arises insight. When something is something we see as they are happening, this is impermanent, this is impermanent, this is impermanent, beginning impermanent, middle impermanent, end is impermanent, 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 impermanent. Then conclusion is no self. Conclusion is insight, understanding. So we so many trillions of things impermanent, then come to conclusion. Yes, that is what we do in experiments in science laboratory. You take specimens of many, 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 many things. As you all know, we have done uh, uh, physics, uh, chemistry and so forth in science laboratory. You take many, many, many specimens and then if everything shows the similar characteristic, then you conclude, yes, we did, yeah. Psychology, you take uh, 50 people, 100 pigeons, 50 guinea pigs, you experiment. And then the conclusion is monkeys, frogs, who cut them up and examine the brain and do all kind of chemical things and uh, figure this and that. And if the things are the same, you conclude, yes. Similarly, we experiment. This is impermanent. This permanent or not? No impermanent. This is permanent or no impermanent? This is permanent or no? So we experiment. Oh, everything we experience. And then conclusion is everything is impermanent. That is what we do in personal meditation. <laughs> Therefore, there is no room for us to have a suspicion. Maybe that may be permanent. <laughs> so we take that and scrutinize, put under our microscope in this science lab, and then see, no, it is impermanent. That kind of personally experiential truth we talked about. No more? No. Okay. Thank you. Very <laughs> quick.
Then we have a little meditation now. Anybody consider asking a question? Oh, anybody from the floor? Yeah, you have? I've been having a hard time uh-huh. with labeling okay. my experiences. <clears throat> I don't get into a dialogue about them. I don't give descriptive explanations in my head, but when I, an experience rises and falls, my head has a tendency to label it. So when when a thought arises, uh, I, I see it, and my, my head will say thought, anger, feelings. You know, it, it just it does that. And I know that, that that's a practice that is done in certain traditions, and I want to know if that is something that I should try not to do, or if it's okay at this stage, because it's frustrating. I'm trying not to do it, and the more I try not to do it, the more it's happening. It's like a barking dog. You might have already heard me say many times, labeling is dangerous. We will never see the truth when you label. Remember that. Never see the truth when you label. Why? The mind will be latched onto the label. Mind will stick on the label. The truth is behind the label. As I said, uh, you name anything, your anger. What do we label? Memory, uh, places, situations, persons. If you label, Mr. Fox, black, tall, obese, you label. And what do you go, what are you going to do with those things? <laughs> no. You say, this is a concept, this is a concept, this is a concept, this is a concept. I don't need them. If you have a memory, just become aware of the fact that it is a memory. It's a memory. Let it go. If you experience something now like emotions, as I mentioned, anger, you know, greed, uh, something like that, be fully aware of the strength, impact, the feeling you get from that particular emotion. Pay attention to it and stay with it and then you can see inside that particular experience, if it is anger, you feel the anger. Now the problem is when, suppose I take anger, I may not talk about that you are getting angry, but uh, for example, if it is anger, then what normally we do, we remember the words, the conversations, uh, or experience, the situations, and then we keep naming them. But if we have anger, if we simply pay attention to anger alone, isolating it, isolate anger, singled it out of everything else, and pay attention to anger, you can deal with anger easily. You can experience the way how you feel, the tension, uh, you know, palpitation, uh, maybe perspiring or agitation, things like that. One by one you can you can isolate and then pay attention to it without labeling. When you start labeling, you end up with labels and don't do anything with your anger, anything with your agitation, excitement and so forth. In order to deal with the particular experience, we have to go direct, right 
into it. Handle that experience alone without labeling. Another thing, there are some other experiences uh, for which we don't have names. We run out of labels. Very deep, profound experiences. For instance, you experience peace. If you put the label to peace, peace will disappear. You cannot experience the peace. You, are, you will hang on to the label. We don't need the label to experience peace. Suppose you gain concentration. The moment you say concentration, concentration will disappear. It will not stay there. When you have metta, feeling metta, not verbalizing metta or thinking metta, when you feel metta feeling, the moment you say metta, the feeling disappears. The mind will stay on the word. So, the words are more superficial, more artificial than the reality experience. So, uh, try, of course, when people have been so accustomed to using labels, it is difficult to give up quickly. But through constant practice and training, we may, you may be able to get it. Yes? Uh, I, I believe that your response to the question about metta, but it's a blind faith. And I, I thought that the question was, could you say something about seeing all things as impermanent? and having no self, such that we could understand why it would not be sufficient just to concentrate and engage in vipassana alone. That we could actually understand that. We, we, uh, we, we know that the Buddha said that and we believe it's true, but I don't see the connection Connection. So the necessary connection. I can see that meta is helpful, mm -hmm. but if it were lacking, I don't see yet that it would be impossible to see into the impermanence of all things and the no self character. With, uh, with meta, perhaps I do not understand the question. I see the helpfulness of meta practice. Uh -huh. But I don't see the necessity for... Oh. Okay, okay, very good, very good. For gaining concentration, metta practice is uh, very, very helpful, gaining concentration. Actually, in, the, in places where Buddha talked about jhana attainment, Jnana attainment is concentration, meditation, practice. Most of the time, he begins with describing the practice with metta. Practicing metta in uh, all directions. He mentioned particularly six directions, north, east, west, south, up and down. And later teachers add other directions as well. And so, send the metta in all directions and then mind becomes uh, free from any resistance. That also is very important uh, 
for the attainment of uh, immaterial attainment, that is called, one sentence is called Patika Sanyanam uh, Tangama. Patika means uh, friction, contact, uh, mental contact. Sometimes uh, friction can arise in the mind when there is a resentment. So we have to overcome that in order to proceed with the practice. So concentration merit for concentration meditation, metta practice is very important. And that is also mentioned in one of the ten, eleven benefits of metta practice. It's called Metta and Samsa Sutta in Anguttara Nikaya. We can see the practicality or practical benefit of practicing metta to gain concentration. For vipassana meditation, it is not necessary for vipassana meditation to see impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and selflessness. Metta practice is not necessary, not even mentioned. However, in uh, Mahasatipattana Sutta, the beginning, Buddha said, uh, Abhijja Dhomanasanangatthangama. Abhijja means uh, intense greed or covetousness. Dhomanasa means sometimes people are translated as grief. Grief. But uh, Dhomanasa means uh, resentment, dislike, disappointment uh, have to be overcome in order to practice Vipassana meditation. Mahasatipattana is a very long discourse uh, where Buddha has given all the necessary instructions for Vipassana meditation. Of course it has Samatha meditation as well, but primarily Vipassana meditation. And uh, in the preparatory stage, overcoming uh, covetousness and resentment is very, very important in order to make the progress smooth. But for pure insight itself, Metta is not necessary.